gonna happen sooner or later. I always expected I would have this problem when I get to Babylon 5. I have a long-standing rule. This isn't actually just for my show, it's for life in general. That I don't bring up or allow conversation on certain types of topics. It's basically hot-button issues. There's no definitive thing because it changes with the times. This has been a rule I've had in my life for the better part of 20 years now. And it's basically because most people lack the ability to converse in such topics without getting into ridiculousness, extremism, or argumentativeness. I'm going to go ahead and give you guys an example I prepared just for this to really explain what I mean. My favorite color is white. Now, how many of you had a reaction to that statement right now? Now, <laughs> I shared this comment with Pax, and his response was, white isn't a color. That made me laugh. Um, but the point is, there are too many people out there, especially in the United States and the region where I live specifically right now, physically, who would have a reaction to that, because white has connotations in the current era. The irony is, my second favorite color is black, but the way I say that has connotations too, doesn't it? See, here's the thing. You could say that, oh, well, I'm all white white, you know, whatever. The mere fact that anyone, anywhere, could conceive of what I just said, which is a basic com commentary that has nothing to do with racism in any way, shape, or form. It is literally, my favorite color is white. That's it. It has nothing to do with anything. But there's that tiny little tingle in the back of your mind, isn't there? You can just hear someone taking offense at that statement, or thinking maybe they need to defend that statement. Well, you know, the moment you have that situation, you have a topic that I usually leave alone. Well, and, and I, could keep, I could fully discuss this. I like using this as an example, the white and black thing, because white is my favorite color and black is my second favorite color, with violet being third and blue being fourth and so forth and so on. The point being, I could use that as an example because it's so easy to. How many people would then get defensive? Oh, well, you know, black's my second favorite color, so it's not like I'm being pro-white or anti-black or anything like that, right? But I'm not getting defensive. That's just how I actually feel. But the mere fact that anyone can interpret that statement as defensive proves my point for me. I've actually been attacked over this issue before. I've even been attacked physically for admitting my favorite color before. This was a long time ago, uh, back in school, back in California, but it did happen. And that's why I like to avoid these topics, because the mere fact of opening the topic to discussion to an open public which you cannot guarantee what their response is going to be automatically means there is a likelihood, in my experience, of someone reacting to it. And as soon as someone reacts to it in such a manner, what you have is a problem that usually isn't going to be solved properly. It's not just about the argumentativeness. It's about the mere fact that someone out there listening to what I just said thinks, Oh God, I can't believe he said that. I guarantee you at least one of you thought that. But I cannot avoid the issues of this episode. And the funny thing is, it tackles two issues in this episode. This episode actually tackles two issues, but it never actually tries to be preachy about either of them. And I feel like that's why it deserves to be discussed in here, because the episode hit both issues hard and right in the face, but didn't actually get preachy about what was correct or the right or wrong way to do things. The two issues in this episode are racism, appropriately enough, or speciesism if you prefer, and historical revisionism. Before we get into the big politics of that, let's go ahead and talk about some behind the scenes stuff like I usually do.
For those of you who don't know, this was originally going to be how the Doctor basically unintentionally created his own big race of sentient uh, AIs, right? Robots, androids, that kind of a thing. And they actually got pretty far into the development of that story. They eventually dropped it because they believed it was basically a tale that was a little too similar to Data. Like, if you swapped the Doctor in for Data, the two were basically one and the same, and so therefore they went ahead and dropped that. Probably a good move, in all honesty. But then they kept fixating on this idea. Joe Minoski and Brennan Braga, by the way, they're the two men who wrote this episode. As usual, the two men do great things together. Um, the two men got together and said, okay, the doctor wakes up in a future museum. Now, their initial idea is interesting, especially since it would have completely ejected both of the, uh, well, at least one of the themes of this episode. It was they were going to wake up in a Romulan museum or a Klingon museum. Now, I like that idea. I like what the episode actually became more. And by the way, I love this episode. It's a great episode, and I strongly recommend it to anyone out there who hasn't watched it yet. But that episode was shot down by Rick Berman. <laughs> now, even though I just said I think the new episode, the one we've got, was actually better than the original idea, Rick Berman, in my opinion, was still in the wrong for his mentality for shooting down that idea. Would you like to hear his reasoning? We don't want the audience to think that Voyager actually makes it home. We want to make sure that there's still that suspense. That's so dumb, I don't even feel like commenting on it. So, puh, on Rick Berman, as I usually do, and let's move on. Now, I want to mention something else here. I bothered to write down the date. April 29th, 1998. That's when this episode came out. Historical revisionism has been a thing for many, many years. Uh, arguably, in my opinion, the real masters of this were uh, certain of the echelons of the Soviet Union back in the, the early 30s and 40s, notably under Stalin's reign. I am actually genuinely impressed in my own horrified way at the amount of uh, revisionism that happened during that era as a direct result of, of the changes in policies that went into that time especially given the ridiculously limited uh, technology that was available at the time. The fact that they could pull that kind of thing off with in the 1940s and 50s and 60s is insane <laughs> and, and kind of scary, if I'm being blunt with myself here. It's a weird sort of respect, if you know what I mean. But, uh, you know what, before I get into that thing, let, let's leave that topic alone. I want to talk about revisionism and the racial thing basically last, so let's just leave that aside. But I mentioned the 19 April April 1998 thing because when this episode came out, racism has, has been an issue here in the States for a long time, and racism has been an issue in human history forever. So that's always a modern thing. But re historical revisionism hasn't really been a hot-button topic until the last several years uh, when it's really started being brought up. Uh, I'd say in the last decade or so, give or take. I just mentioned that for context because this is not the first time or the last time that Star Trek has raised a big social issue without meaning to. They did so purely because they wanted to talk about the concept in a theoretical form, and then later on, real life emulated it in a way that makes it going back to this episode, or the episode in question, as it may be, it changes perspectives, if you know what I mean. This is yet another example of that. Uh, Homefront over on DS9 is a good example of what I'm talking about. I also want to give huge, huge props to Tim Russ. 
Now, for those of you who don't know, Tim Russ has since gone on after Voyager to become a fairly successful producer and director. This was his first directing gig ever, this episode. And I think he nailed it. He does a lot of really good stuff with this episode, a lot of interesting and creative tricks with regards to the camera work. Uh, they actually did a few things that you probably wouldn't even notice with regards to camera work that were really unusual. Uh, usually when you have a camera swivel like this, you actually have basically a device, I'm, I'm summarizing excessively, that basically makes it so that it will turn a certain number of degrees exactly, and then up a certain number of degrees exactly, and zoom in, like, so you it's so you get a smooth cut, right? Rather than a human trying to do it. He actually had several people doing it free, just holding the pulley and turning it over like this, and they had to do a couple of takes like that and, and emulate it, and it was a, it always results in, in at least in my opinion, my cinematography, cinematographical, cinematographic, there's got to be a word for that, in my opinion, as a film geek, it looks better when you have an actual person do it. And it shows in this episode, in the way the, the camera swoops go and that kind of thing. The, uh, the other thing I want to talk about Tim Russ, though, is why I think he was a good director. I've said before that, with very few exceptions, I don't think people have an innate gift for something. I think that people apply themselves to something that's interesting to them, and that's how they get good at it. To use an example over on TNG, two of the actors on TNG became really good directors. Jonathan Frakes and LeVar Burton. Both of them really applied themselves to that, though, and really pushed to make that their main career focus uh, during the tail end of TNG and into their careers thereafter. And they both really worked at being good at it when they started. Most of the other crew that were given uh, directing, directing chops and allowed to direct didn't really do nearly as well. Another example I could use here is Leonard Nimoy back in the movies, who really tried very hard to be a good director and wanted and pushed for that, and Shatner got to be a director and had not actually done that prep work in advance. Now, in credence to William Shatner, he has since actually applied himself and has actually become a much better director in the time since Star Trek V. It could be argued that Star Trek V was his big, harsh lesson and what not to do, but I digress. The point is, Tim Russ, they have a program uh, that they make that they let you do. At least they did at the time, back at Paramount. You basically, it was like a two-year course, basically, that you do off and on. And Tim Russ not only went through that, but he applied himself for three years prior to this, prepping himself and working and studying, you know, uh, cinematographic history. There's got to be a word. Cinematographic. Is that right? No. Cinematography? Cinematography history. He was really applying himself. I'm sorry, I'm really tired. Uh, cinematography history and seeing what the greats, you know, watching Kurosawa's work, watching the stuff that George Lucas did back in the day when he was really showing his chops as a director, you know, all that fun stuff. Old Spielberg, you know, really looking at the great directors. Um, there's another one, uh, Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick. And studying and analyzing their work and trying to figure out how they w did certain things and why certain things worked, the, the, the concept of uh, characters coming in from the left side towards the right and what significance that has to uh, antagonism and protagonism and all that fun stuff. All of those little things that most people aren't even aware of, Tim Russ applied himself to for three years before being given the director's chair. So it's no wonder his very first directing job ever looks really polished, in my opinion, because he worked for it. And like I said, Tim Russ has since gone on to become a great director, and he'll be directing more episodes in Voyager as we go through it, too. I just wanted to mention that, though, because it, I, I feel like it puts a face on the whole directing thing. Not every actor can become a su successful director, but I don't think it's about, you know, I'm just talented or whatever. I think it's because they apply themselves and really care about being a good director. And Tim Russ clearly really wanted that director's chair. And I think he earned it. So props to him. I really hope Renegades turns out, has turned out, based on you know, whenever this episode goes live, and actually becomes a real show with Tim Russ at the directing chair because 
I think that'll be a great show because I really like Tim Russ's work. So moving on here. Oh my goodness! So, um, the cast loved this episode. One of the things I've always said is the crew, the the cast, the actors will always put in a better performance the more fun they're having. This is something I've said many, many times. It's some of the things that that salvage scenes or indeed, indeed entire movies that should be dumb, that should be stupid or disinteresting or boring because the crew is just really flinging themselves into it and really enjoying themselves because all that enthusiasm shows through. I've talked about this countless times before. Uh, this also comes true when we come into uh, ridiculous works like the, uh, oh, what's it called? The It's an action flick movie with Sylvester Stallone that's recent. And I can't think of it. God, I am so tired. Um, the Undeadables or something like that. God, I can't remember. I really can't. Everyone's going to comment and say it. Please don't comment and say it. I'll look it up after the recording this. Please don't comment and say it. I don't want to get 15 comments when the day this goes live saying, Oh, it was the blah, blah, blahs. Um, but anyways, you know that, that, that film series is a great example of the actors just having fun on the camera and really showing that enthusiasm, which, in my opinion, elevates the, the quality of those movies significantly. You know, it's, it's a kind of thing like that. The Last Action Hero is probably a better example of what I'm talking about, but that's an older film. Um, and I've always said that's one of the salvaging points of Voyagers, the fact that the crew has always had such good chemistry, and they really showed some genuine enthusiasm for the job. So... I love the evil Voyager crew. I really do. And so did they. And that's my point. I think the reason those scenes are so enjoyable is because of the way they're just like, yeah, throwing themselves into the role. Love it. It's a bit of a shame that Roxanne Dawson was not able to join in Belon Taurus because she was still recovering from having given a child. In fact, a uh, little anecdote here. There's a line where uh, the doctor waxes philosophical and nostalgic about the crew that was his family and how much he misses them. The one he brings up specifically is is Balana, and that line was edited to make it Balana specifically, and not anyone else, specifically for the fact to 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 honor Roxanne Dawson and her newborn child. So I just thought that was a nice little touch. Again, showing that as with many of the Star Trek shows, the crew tended to be family on and off the set. You know what I mean? <laughs> so. Uh, I mentioned already that Brennan Braga and Minoski did this. Uh, Minoski really did some great character stuff, mostly with the Doctor. Braga really managed to stretch himself out. As I said, Braga likes doing unique things. This was an idea that was almost shouted down, and Braga had to fight for it. In case you're not paying attention, this episode has no Voyager crew in it. No actual Voyager crew, just recreations. This episode is basically not set on Voyager. This episode basically has nothing to do with Voyager. And this was unusual. This is a weird thing to do. And I know you could argue technically it's left or right, but the point is this was something Braga had to fight for, and I'm glad he succeeded. This is among my favorite Voyager episodes. It's up there in the you know, 9 to 10 range in the negative 10 to 10 scale for Voyager. Um, there's a lot of nice little touches in this episode. They keep mispronouncing a couple of people's names, like Chakote, for example, or however the heck they say it. And there's a lot of little touches in the setting, uh, the the... Uh, the sets, excuse me, and the CGI model, the the, the Voyager being different. You know, there's, there's a few little things, the black shirt with the gloves. It, it's funny because all they did was change the undershirt to black and added the gloves, yet it makes the uniforms look so much different, doesn't it? They did a lot of little stuff like that to really flesh out the uh, incorrect picture of Voyager, which I rather liked. Uh, fun fact, when this episode very first came on air, my first thought was it was a Mirror Universe episode. My mom thought that too. 
because we know that they've done that kind of thing, and that's already happened on DS9 at this point in time, you know, the Mirror Universe being a, a more prominent thing in DS9 than it ever was in the original series. So, you know, that was a fairly common uh, thought process, and I was like, oh, wow. I also... Uh, Okay, I want to mention uh, one thing, and I'm gonna, I, I have a note here. Be brief. <laughs> I'm making a note to myself to be brief. Oh God, look at look at my eyes. Look at them. Um, the I want to talk about the Prime Directive briefly. Okay, now I've talked about the Prime Directive enough. So that's why I'm going to be brief. But one of the things I've heard people bring up about this episode is, let's assume the Doctor's uh, re recreation of events is accurate, which seems logical. I mean, he's got data banks, which aren't likely to be inaccurate like human being memories is, right? So it's very li likely that what he said is that what actually happened, right? So what we have here is a situation where <sighs> the argument that I always hear is the Prime Directive is all about non-interference, right? Well, I would argue no, but let's just go with that concept. Ergo, you, and, and, and the concept that's all I always hear argued when for proponents of the Prime Directive as it's applied in later Star Trek, Voyager, and Enterprise specifically, is you never know the consequences. Now, I think that's a, uh, a huge fallacy as far as arguments go, because that's like saying, the sky, I don't know, that's like saying, water is wet. Because of course you never know the consequences. You don't know the future. You don't know the consequences of walking out your door tomorrow. And I mean that literally. I mean, you can be like, well, you can extrapolate. Yeah, but you still don't know the consequences. You have no idea what's going to happen. You have no idea what the consequences are of any action you take ever. That is a phallic argument. A phallus. Wow, I should have just said. That is a fraudulent argument. Oh, God. Everyone's just going to misquote that. All other things. I might edit that out. Um, <laughs> vote now to see if I edit that out. Uh, it, it's a fraudulent argument. It's wrong. It's incorrect. It's inaccurate because that basically personifies the idea that was that was shown in the in the, in the aliens in just the previous episode. The guys who are super, you know, we need to keep everything conformed. We need to keep everything within our bubble because that's the only way you can ensure that you don't affect other species. Now, the argument that that could be said in favor of the Prime Directive is very strong here. Admittedly, Voyager came here to do trade for Dilithium, and they ended up affecting seven centuries worth of history. Now, that's a big push, but this is really important. The only reasonable way to avoid that is to literally not come into contact with anyone. To literally take non-interference to its logical extreme. And I think that's just being silly. That is literally the anti-technology argument which I brought up before and uh, brought up in Insurrection a few weeks ago. All over again. You get rid of the bad, yes, but you also get rid of the good. You, you argue that the loss of the bad is worth the loss of the good. And I just can't agree with that. Oh my god. Um, one thing I love about this episode is both sides of the racism argument, which I'll talk about in a bit, are shown to be pretty equally right and wrong. We see people from both sides, the Kyrians and the Kratassans, I want to say? I forget the name. But anyways, both sides of the people, uh, we see them interacting with each other. Some of them seem to be reasonable, some of them seem to be playing the race card, some of them seem to be inclined towards violence. At no point in time is it shown that there is a clearly correct person. In my opinion, that is always the best way to do a message show, even if it's not designed to be a message show. Make it clear that this is not something where there's a right or a wrong. It's just a dilemma. 
with no clear victor and no clear protagonist or antagonist. And I like that, that this episode does that. I also really like a quote from the, uh, I can't think of his name, the guest star, the excellent guest star who plays the, the museum curator. He says, if, if evidence, you know, if the new evidence comes to light and changes things, we will change our views accordingly. He says that very defensively. The actor does a great job of it. And yet when the doctor later on confronts him with it, he denies it consistently, repeatedly, to the point where he shuts the doctor off in mid-sentence, specifically to ensure that he doesn't hear what he, what he, what is something that he disagrees with. That really highlights the problem this pa these people have. This is a man who is proclaimed to be interested in the truth, and yet when something comes up to challenge that truth, he does what most people do when faced with a situation, and there's no judgment here. He shuts it off. He shuts it out. He shuts it down. He shows his chops and his strength by being willing to listen in the end after having given it some time to thought. Because as we all know, in the moment, we do dumb things. Most of our biggest mistakes in our lives are usually done in the moment. I've talked about this concept many, many times. I'll be talking about it when we do the StarCraft lore run again soon. So... In the moment, I could perfectly see him shutting down the doctor. I'm amazed he didn't destroy the emitter, destroy the program. But when he had a time to think about it and, cons and you know, actually process it, he was like, okay, I don't believe you necessarily, but I'm at least willing to listen. And I like that, but it also highlights the problem, because this is a man who is probably more open-minded than most of his people, most people in general. And this man... Is, the, is someone who is willing to shut the doctor off just to not listen. Can you imagine what other people are going to respond to that? Well, yes, you can, because the rest of the episode shows you how other people respond. Violence, race riots, destruction, deaths. That's how other people respond to something that challenges their viewpoint, their perspective on the world. The ugly, dirty truth here is that the racism and historical revisionism are both tied so intricately together that I don't think you could separate the two ideas, the two themes of this episode. I said I'd get to this, and we'll get to this here. In this episode, before I really get it, I want to just cover something really quick. First of all, uh, I, I want to mention that I really like the fact that the Doctor is more than willing to participate in historical revisionism if it means to save lives. That is very the doctor, and I really like that. It also especially is great because then the curator, whose name I can't remember, then has to go ahead and talk the doctor into revealing the truth, which shows his character growth throughout the course of the episode, that he is willing to see that this is not about what the truth is. This is simply about the truth. And furthermore, that the truth doesn't actually change the reality of the situation. There's a line in here that it's always about race. And that tends to be true in real life, too. But the funny thing is, when you really bear it down, race means nothing when it comes to our interactions with each other. Let me explain what I mean by this. This is my perspective on it, okay? I was once asked if I looked down upon people who had a slightly different skin color than me. And I started laughing. I was pretty young when this happened, because the thought was ludicrous to me. You were literally like asking me, uh, you know, Lore Runner, if I was to tell you that the moon is made of spaghetti, would you agree with me? Because it's stupid! And I'm forgive me for being blunt, but I don't see why that has anything to do with anything. You're a person! 
not a skin tone, not a nationality, not a gender, not anything else. You're a person. I may judge you based on your actions and your, uh, you know, the way you present yourself, but I will never prejudge you based on superficial things of total irrelevance. That is the complete, uh, that is so illogical to me that I can't even process, I literally cannot process that thing. And yet, it has been shown time and time again that human beings will participate in this form of classism. This is so true throughout all of reality. I'm actually guilty of classism in my own ways. I've actually admitted to this in World of Warcraft, basically. I tend to be very elitist when it comes to that game. It's basically the one outlet I allow for that, if, if you understand what I mean. But when it comes to real life, I don't even get that. How can you do that? How can you look at someone and say, well, you're a black guy? No, you're a guy. You're a guy, a person. I'm a guy, a person. You're a girl. A person. That's my perspective. And that really summarizes it all. And that's why I bring up that it's always about race thing, because that doesn't process to me. Now, I'm not saying you should get rid of your culture or your history or anything like that. I'm total, I totally get that. My biggest thing is not we all need to be the same. It is we all tolerate and, and understand and have mutual respect for each other because we're different. It's the Mass Effect ideal I talked about, what is it, three years ago now when Mass Effect 3 came out. That was the big thing I talked about with the Mass Effect 3 ending and what it should have been. Remember? We are all different. And the lesson is not we need to tolerate each other. The lesson is not we all need to be the same. The lesson is it is our differences that make us great. It is the variance between us that actually makes us a people, a force, a society, a culture. So yes, hold on to your beliefs, hold on to your practices, hold on to your beliefs. Whatever it is that defines you, by all means, do that within reason. But you are still a person that I respect because you are a person, because you're different from me. So you, you see the, the difference here, the distinction. So yes, it's always about race for some people. But it never should be, if I can be blunt. And I know that's not going to happen. I know that will never happen in human society. I know that. I don't understand that. I'm sorry for ranting about that. It's just, this is something that's bothered me since I was a child. I grew up in the early 80s, in the late, well, early 80s. And I don't understand. It, it was actually a lot worse uh, when I was growing up in, in California, in certain areas I lived in California. And I couldn't understand it then either. Mom tried to explain it to me, and I was just like, well, why would you do that? Because this, the really screwed up thing here is, you know what pisses me off about it? It's this wonderful fine line. You are different from me, and that's fine. But what most racism, or classism, or speciesism, or elitism, or whatever it is, boils down to is superiority. I am better than you, because blah. You are worse than me, because blah. That's what that boils down to. And that doesn't even begin to compute for me. But we see that throughout this episode. We see people on both sides of the race line in this episode who view the other side as the enemy, as someone who is less than them, as someone who is antagonizing them. They try to portray themselves as the victims, or they try to portray their enemies as the antagonists in order to try and elevate themselves. Because that's what it's all about. It really is all about that superiority thing. It's all about elevating yourself either by lifting yourself up or lowering them down. 
And you see this everywhere in this episode. And it's probably one of the most blunt, blunt, brutal, and effective demonstrations of racism I've ever seen in fiction. And I mean that sincerely. Now that I've opened that can of worms, let's talk about revisionist history, shall we? Uh, I actually talked about this on my stream not too long ago. I, t I mentioned Stalin earlier, right? Well, revisionist history is what I like to call the worst extreme of lost history, okay? Let me explain what I mean by this. Uh, anybody out there a fan of Doctor Who? I, uh, I'm sure I don't have to tell most of you who are fans, but I'm going to mention this for those of you who don't really know about Doctor Who. Doctor Who came out a while ago, back when television was still kind of a new thing. And uh, people were still figuring out how television worked. And for a lot of reasons that are actually quite complicated, and I don't want to bore you with them here, there are episodes of Doctor Who we don't have. Now, in the modern era, that's an insane thought, to have literally have a piece of history that's lost, and we know it's lost. But this has happened. Doctor Who is only one example, by the way. There are actually plenty of examples from this, especially in the mid-1900s, you know, around the 50s to 70s range. There are plenty of movies and books and films that are, excuse me, television shows that are just gone. And we will probably never get them back because no effort was made, made to re retain them. That is lost history. Those episodes of Doctor Who, there is a very good chance we will never get them back. That is art, history, and culture that is permanently lost to us. And we know that. We know it's gone. I was talking about this recently with regard to Konami, and they pulled digital games. I talked about this with regards to the, uh, the, the legal company whose name I can never think of, who I spit on every time I think about them. Not company, it's, a, it's an organization in the States, um, who was trying to argue that uh, maintaining abandonware games and, and trying to support games that have since been abandoned by their, uh, the companies. And I'm talking true abandonware, not just IPs that are being sit on was piracy and illegal and should be shut down. Those people are literally, actively trying to enforce the loss of history. Revisionist history takes that a step further. That actually says not just losing history, but changing it around to make it different, to make it more suitable to whatever it is you think it should be, or whatever the politics of the time should be. It's so astonishing to me, and yet so logical to think that a political party who is interested in simple and small-minded concerns such as their career, which will only last a few decades, can change an aspect of society for their entire nation such that people decades later still don't know what actually happened because they were interested in some brownie points. That's happened so often in history. That's revisionist history. The really screwed up thing about revisionist history, though, and this episode puts a light on this, and I really like this, it's not always done with malevolence or neglect, as I just gave an example of. Sometimes it's done simply because of an inclination. One of the things that's shown is the curator and his people, his race, have a tendency towards a victimization complex. You know, we are the victims, that kind of a thing. Uh, that's not the only perspective shown on them, but it is definitely present in him. He is very defensive at the beginning part of the episode, and he very clearly shows that he and his people were, you know, the, the poor, you know, the martyrs, and, the, and oh, God, pariahs, you know, that kind of a thing. I don't think he's actually racist like most people could define that term. But I do think he has that inclination. And so it's one of those things that is so subtle you probably don't notice yourself doing it. I have no doubt that he didn't even notice. He was interpreting the data he had available and the research he had available in his own particular way 
that was leaning itself towards that inclination. Completely unintentional revisionist history. And yet he'd been doing it for all his life, basically. And then when it was challenged, well, I already told you his first reaction. That's why I say I think it was unintentional, because to him, this was just the truth. And it took him some time out of the moment to really think about it and process and realize this was what he thought was the truth. This is what he was inclined to believe was the truth. The actual truth was pretty different. And yet the interesting thing is the actual truth still showed that neither side was good back in the conflict back then, and neither side was bad. Just two opponents, two different ideological parties, just like most wars are fought over. My final thought on the idea of historical revisionism is the fact that the greatest crime of it, in my personal opinion, my professional opinion, as, as an amateur historian who has loved history and tries to read and learn and grow and, and forms my own opinions on it, my greatest regret to the idea of historical revisionism is the concept that it can spread to the point where after a certain period of time no one knows it's revisionist anymore no one knows if it's real or not anymore now please please do not bring up the topics that I know some of you are thinking about bringing up in my comments thing <laughs> as I mentioned earlier I don't want to talk about this but suffice it to say there are many things in our history going back even so much as a mere century that we're still not sure about because of politicians or neglect or loss because of the literal fact that some of the things that were written down did not survive, you know? Just like with Doctor Who. It's one of the reasons I've always strived to be so damned honest on my show. I know that sounds weird, but it's my own personal viewpoint that keeps me onto that track. I mean, it is a commitment to you guys, and I'm not going to lie about that. But even if you guys wanted me to lie, I'm not sure I could. You know, if you wanted me to be more, you know, oh, well, let me talk about Nemesis and talk about it in a, in a more defensive way to try and highlight the positives of the film, which would be a lie. It would be me revising history. You follow? But I try to be so honest because, in my opinion, true honesty, true truth is what it really boils down to, is what really needs to happen, good or bad. Good truth, that helps us to keep going forward. Bad truth allows us to fix what we did wrong. This is a great episode, and I really strongly recommend you watch it if you have not already. And I hope you enjoyed me rambling <laughs> in my half-asleep state. And I will see you guys next week. Eight Kyrian fighter ships approaching. Arm the assault probes. Fire at will. Hail them. Channel open. This is Captain Janeway of the warship Voyager. Break off your attack or I'll destroy you. They are not responding. They're returning fire. Shields are holding. Chakote. Any luck tracking down their leader? Not yet. We think Tedron has gone into hiding. I thought he might. We'll have to flush him out. What do you suggest? Biogenic weapons will infect the most populated Kyrian territories. The doctor's nearly done working on the weapon. Our conflict is with Tedrin himself, not with his people. 
They're innocent. The best way to bring down a ruler is to make his people suffer. Captain. There's no time for half measures. You wanted victory. You're going to get it? Bridge to sick base status. We have established a data link between my neural net and the phaser array. I am reconfiguring the beam to carry a bio-agent into the planet's atmosphere. When will it be ready? It is ready now, Captain. Phasers are online. Target the first city. Empire. 